Tonight I, I'm not hearing myself. No juice. Tonight I'd like to speak about the Four Noble Truths. Um, first I'd like to begin by doing a little continuation to the story that Anna began last night. But before I do, I want to congratulate you for making it through the second day, which is, I didn't want to say it earlier, or we didn't want to say it earlier, sometimes it's harder than the first. So I appreciate that you've all uh, carried on. Often this path is uh, described as uh, swimming against the stream. And you may, sometimes it feels, as one of my colleagues uh, calls it, like sludge, really swimming upstream against uh, the current of our conditioning that, that wants to do anything but keep quiet and look within. So a great, uh, it's actually quite a heroic thing to, to enter into this, this stream. Um, <clears throat> I thought as Anna was speaking last night about the, the realization of the, the Buddha when he was a prince, the realization uh, that a life of extremes uh, would not lead to a sense of a reliable refuge or a, a reliable sense of well-being. She talked about how what's really needed is a, a middle way, a middle way between uh, the excesses of uh, sensual comfort and self-mortification or, or denial in a way. And so I thought, as we created these beautiful conditions here, I thought that I would share a little piece that I used to read back in the, in the 80s that I think speaks to what actually happens in the situation that we're in here. This is a cartoon, and it's a person who goes up to the mountain to meet the guru, just like you did, I suppose. Hey, guru, I've always wondered what you guys do up there on the mountain all day. Well, at sunrise, I get up, I eat a handful of parched corn and start meditating. And then at noon, I eat another handful of parched corn, go back to meditating until dark, when I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? Espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, <laughs> pizza, french fries, hot dogs, banana splits. You can tell the food is very dated here. Pancakes, potato chips, donuts, baked Alaska, Twinkies, and more espresso. But we walk a path called the, the middle way. And you can see, just as an aside, that throughout your practice here, it's all about finding that middle way, that balance. And I remembered this morning the questions about sleepiness and dreaminess. And this is really a function of the ever-changing balance of energy, which is an important factor of our practice, and tranquility. When tranquility is high, we're quiet, we're at peace, and energy is low, what happens? We joke often here at Spirit Rock, it's like the wailing wall in Jerusalem. <laughs> the reverse is also true. When energy is high and tranquility is low, which happens, it goes back and forth. What do we experience? We experience restlessness. And so we find when we, when we are dull, when we're falling on our face, we pick up the, the energy a little bit. So there's this constant balancing, finding that moderate place that Anna so beautifully spoke about last night. So the Buddha not only realized and expressed this necessity of finding a middle way, but he also, in the course of his practice, he discovered many things, and that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. He started like all of us, as Anna mentioned, with a life of privilege and comfort, and, and he saw the futility of trying to find anything reliable in that kind of life. And yet he saw that within that world of, of what we could call the conventional world of, of pleasure and comfort, that there are 
that there are really wonderful moments that we can have. He said that we should look at these moments and know these moments, but we should also see what their, what's called, what he called their defects or their dangers, that we can get hooked on, hooked into them, we can get attached to them, we can get all bound up in, in those pleasures. I bet a few of you have noticed getting a little bound up in pleasures. He also suggested that we see what it's like to be free of them, not be so bound up in them, to feel that sense of, I don't, my sense of well-being doesn't depend on this. But nevertheless, he saw that there was a, a great value in being able to enjoy the world of senses. So it's not as though you have to give them up completely. That middle way includes them. And he talked about that in some way that it's not giving up these things, but in really understanding what their uh, dangers and their defects are, understanding that they go away. And then, of course, in, that course of his, in the course of his story, he did very much the same kind of practice that you're doing. When he followed that renunciate, that ascetic around, or that, uh, what did you call him? I forgot what you called him. A mendicant, a monk, somebody who had, was living a life differently he began to do some of the practices that were available at those in those days. And he quickly, because his heart was so much involved in that one kind of desire, that one longing that no other desire could fulfill, no other pleasure could fulfill that deepest longing, he very quickly developed very strong sense of one-pointedness and presence. And he began in his, own, in his own meditation to experience great sense of happiness, great sense of bliss and joy. But then he started to notice something, even with the most exquisite kind of bliss. He started to notice that it, was, it had a, a feature to it that he didn't quite expect, because this was the, the ultimate of what was being taught in his day. He saw that even those rarefied states that uh, he had entered into were ultimately changing, unreliable, and consequently couldn't give him the lasting happiness that he wanted. So here he was having traveled the world of ordinary pleasures to an excess beyond what most people can experience, comparable to the level of privilege that we have in our culture. Then he experienced all these meditative states, and he saw that's not it either, because it won't last. What did he do then? It's then that he sat under the Bodhi tree. He sat down, he took the food, got comfortable, remembered a time when he was young and comfortable, so he put some meat on his bones, sat down under the tree, and with that same determination, he decided that he wasn't going to get up until he found what he was looking for, found some place. He knew already that it was an inside job, that he knew that he could, you could know intellectually or cognitively, I know I'm what I'm looking for, as you are what you are looking for. That's what's so easy to forget. But he knew that, but didn't have the confidence, didn't have the, uh, or didn't have the, the, um, the direct experience of it had the sense, the intuition, but not the direct experience. So he sat down and he used some of the practice that he had developed. He aroused some steadiness of mind using the same tools that we're using. He developed that very strong foundation of harmony of mind and body, of brightness of mind, of steadiness of mind, stillness, calm, all these qualities that are very important for being able to bear, to bear witness, to look directly at life. And as he did that, he began to see so much. He began to see all those same things that you've been watching. He saw the, the aches and pains of the body. He saw the moods and mental states. He saw the incredible array of thoughts and views and stories, the profound drama of his, uh, of his life playing through his mind. Did any of you see any of that today? No different. It's a human being, as Anna mentioned, not unlike any of us. But 
it's so easy, as you can see, when we don't have the development yet of that steadiness, that composure, that brightness of mind, it's so easy to just get carried along by that stream of, of sensations and feelings and thoughts. But he, he sat there and he paid attention and he paid attention until he began to see something very interesting. He saw the same old doubts, the same old fears. He was visited by, uh, said to be visited by Mara, the, 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 uh, the voice in our mind of temptation and doubt and all those voices that suggest that we can't really be happy, that something, that something's wrong with us. And everyone else, as we've been saying, everyone else is getting enlightened and I'm miserable. And all those same voices. He saw the same voices, but because he had begun in his own process to make a shift from being carried along by those experiences, rather to notice them, to being lost and what we call identified with those experiences to noticing, ah, this is doubt, this is fear, this is whatever, is, this is thinking, this is my self-story, this is aching, this is burning, this is stabbing, this is itching, this is the whole range. He began to see something interesting. He saw that everything was coming and going. And as he noticed everything come and go, less involved, less caught up in what was happening, still experiencing the whole array of experience, everything you and, you and I do without being caught up in it, he began to experience a kind of balance, a kind of joy, a joy that comes when you're not reacting to things. You're not pushing things away. The whole range of feelings are still there, but you're not, you're not stuck. And he realized that this was a taste. He was tasting as he paid attention. He was tasting a well-being within himself that didn't have any dependency on what was going on. And he saw that everything was equal opportunity and that it reminded him that he was present. It reminded him he, that he was there. It reminded him that he was steady. It reminded him that he was awake. Every, everything he noticed became the cause of his awakening. So it wasn't about getting rid of anything. It wasn't about deleting anything. It was about this shift in perception, this shift in relationship. And as his mind relaxed, stopped pushing, stopped pulling, stopped getting so involved, he, his mind opened. He just opened. His heart opened. And he felt as though his heart was as big as the world. He was no longer in his mind. He was no longer caught up in that mind that separates ourselves out continuously, thinks that we're the one has is often used in the Bhagavad Gita, the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. He wasn't in, he, he stopped feeling that way. But he realized that that sense of freedom that he, he felt was, was very subtle because it's, it's like trying to see your own face. It's very, it's, you can't really put your fingers on it, but yet he knew that there was a sense of freedom and well-being. He knew that he, his own mind, his own nature, was what he had been looking for. And it seemed very available, no matter what came and go, what came and went. At this point, he realized that he was home free in a way. Realized that he had found what he was looking for, and he stayed a long time pondering, reflecting on what, he, what had happened to him. He had been working really hard in his practice, really persevered through a lot of ups and downs, all, all that experimentation that Anna spoke about. And it's a reminder that we, can, we are trainable, that we can learn, that in fact, what he did with his attention, what he did with his life was to devote it to this kind of inquiry, this kind of search. So it's a reminder to look at what are we doing with our life? What are we devoted to? Are we devoted to that world of, of pleasure that, um, that actually 
brings a, puts us in a, a cycle of, of dissatisfaction, keeps us kind of bound up, or are we, are we giving rise in our own minds to that one, giving a voice to that one desire that no other desire can fulfill, the desire to realize our own true home, our own, own true nature. So realizing how subtle this um, understanding was and what it had taken him to realize this, even though he didn't have to, in some ways, it's kind of funny that he didn't have to lift out of the, the very moment that he was in. You know, we always think we have to go somewhere, do somewhere, do something, um, become somebody. He saw that this was, this was about letting go of all of that. It's about just being himself. Not so much the idea of himself, but just the naturalness of, of being present. As I say this, I, I wonder right now if you know what I mean by the naturalness of being present. I guess the only way to experiment with that is, is ask you to stop being present. Notice what happens. It's kind of hard, isn't it? not to be present. It's just natural. Just experiment with that for a moment. So at first he didn't think anybody would get this. This simple, this open secret. But then he remembered his, his ascetic friends who he had done some of the more extreme denial practices, self-mortification practices. And he saw that they um, had the kind of sincerity, they, but they were misguided in, in that they had gone to that extreme, that extreme of, of, of self-denial and, and had gotten tight and rigid, kind of like our, our modern-day fundamentalists. Tight, hard, aversive. And yet he, knew, he thought that they might be open to what he had to um, speak about. And he also realized that there were probably a lot of beings who just had a little bit of dust on their eyes. That's how the phrase went. They had a little dust on their eyes. And if they were pointed toward themselves, pointed in the right direction, that anyone, and I would include everyone in this room as those with maybe a little dust on your eyes, even though you, that may not fit the story that you tell yourself about yourself. But that... He said he thought that there were those with a little dust who, if pointed in the right direction, could realize exactly what he realized. And of course, I think that has um, been borne out in the fact that many thousands, many millions over the last 2,500 years have put the, the same teachings to practice and realized the fruits of what he, what he taught. And it's essentially what we're doing here. And in that first discourse called the... Um, in the simple version called the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, he expounded on this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. The first thing he said was, life is filled with, marked by an enormous amount of stress. It's stressful. It's stressful to be born, it's stressful to live, it's stressful to get sick, it's stressful to die. It's stressful to have frustrated desire, not to get what you want. And it's also stressful not to want what you get. And we all experience this. And he suggested that this fact, this truth that life is embedded with a kind of stress. He called dukkha. Dukkha is more elaborately translated, it's sometimes loosely translated as suffering. But perhaps more accurately, it's translated as that which is difficult to bear, stressful, um, burdensome, unreliable, unsatisfactory, a whole range of things. Life is marked by this uh, reality. He never said that all of life is stressful. He said that it has all of these ways that it's stressful and filled with, du with dukkha. 
he suggested that we need to acknowledge that this is true about our lives. Any of you disagree with this? This is <laughs> so you're on. You're, you've already met the first criteria of a real-time acknowledgement of the Four Noble Truths. And this is not just meant as a theory. It was meant as a practice, in a sense, a practice manual, a living practice that could be realized. In fact, in many of his discourses, he would say, to be realized here and now, to be realized here and now. Not there and then, not some other time, but here and now to be realized. So it reminds us that we can put these to the test in any moment, and we're asked to do that over and over. And this is why we train ourselves in mindful attention, so that we can do that. The second thing that he recommended that we do about this truth, besides acknowledge it, is to welcome it, is to feel it, is to really take it in. And this also, what allows us to do that, is this sense of presence, this embodied presence that says, yes, I can sit in the middle of what is going on. I can know for myself, this is achiness, this is burning, this is frustration, this is boredom. I can feel this. This is, I brought a list along with me tonight. This is discomfort in being in a body. Any of you ever have that? This is alienation, this is despair, this is uncertainty. This is lack of control, feature of life. This is grief. This is frustration. This is fear, anger, longing, unease. This is vulnerability. This is anxiety, pain, stress, instability. This is inadequacy. To be able to feel these experiences as part of our experience, to understand them in, a, in that most intimate way of feeling them. The suggestion was that if you didn't do this, that your life would be, as Rumi put it, an endless running from silence, an endless search, an endless running away from this fact of experience. So the first part is to acknowledge it. The second is to feel it. The third part of this first noble truth is to really accept it. Yes, this is true. Not just accept it, accept it or acknowledge it, but to accept it the fact this is what's actually happening here. And be able to say, yes, this has been accepted. This has been acknowledged and understood as a feature of my life, that it, my life is entwined with this experience of stress. So this is not, uh, I always like to remember that the, the Buddha was not called the great sufferer. He was called Sukhiya, the happy one. But the happiness was not of being in a good mood all the time. It was that happiness, that sense of well-being that, that doesn't depend on what's going on, that can sit in the middle of what they call in the Zen tradition, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It can bear what life has to offer. This is our practice, and it's not easy at first, as you can see. Hard just even being in this beautiful place. So difficult. But I have this happy feeling when I know that your minds, as you're here, and your hearts will become more courageous, your minds more steady, hearts more open. And slowly, slowly, you, you will be meeting your experience and fulfilling these three criteria. Acknowledging what's happening that's stressful, feeling it, and accepting that it's there. The Buddha talked about, about three kinds of dukkha, three kinds of stress. And it's something that we can also reflect upon in our lives. That first type I already described uh, that he called dukkha dukkha, the garden variety of the, the pain or stress of sickness, old age, death, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get, of loss, of being separated from loved ones and from things and situations and uh, all the different kinds of basic stresses that we have. 
He also talked about what he called anicca dukkha. Anicca is the word in Pali for impermanence. The fact that everything that has the nature to rise has the nature to fall away. That everything is in a, our life, our minds, our bodies are in a constant state of flux. And the continual coming and going of things is, is, is kind of stressful. Not just kind of stressful, it's very stressful. You can't tell your body not to get old. You, can't tell, you can tell it not to get sick, and I think it actually helps a little bit. But ultimately, your body goes and your mind goes according to, to causes and conditions, cause and effect. And, and it's really, in some ways, not so governable. Things coming and going. So this is called anicca dukkha. And the third kind, he called sankara dukkha, which is this subtle kind of oppressive feeling that many of us have but don't fully acknowledge that it's just hard to live. That getting up and working and cleaning and shopping and doing everything that you have to do and then having our, our Jackson Brown moment of getting up and do, or our Groundhog Day moment of getting up and doing it again every day. It's stressful. It's not easy and it, it leaves this sense of that we're constantly demanded to face life. There's a kind of impingement, a kind of oppression in that. And even the most delicious experiences are sometimes shaded with that quality of, of um, oppression, just having to experience, sense experience, even the pleasant stuff. That there is a constant barrage of sights and sounds and smells and tastes. It's why one of my teachers suggested why we love to sleep so much at night we can turn it off. But somehow we think that even though we all have this, the fact that we do, there's something wrong with us. This is exemplified in the story that's anonymous. I don't know who the author is. It's called The 84th Problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things he w about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked the Buddha how, how he could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be the great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly, then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. Fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop with the fact of our problems. He said the central cause of the, this one is a little bit delicate to speak about, the central cause of the uh, mental aspect of our stress and difficulty. It's not the only cause, but it is the central cause and one, around, one that we can really work with and one that our practice really addresses directly. He said that there is a cause for suffering. This is the second noble truth. And this cause is craving, thirst, sometimes called attachment, grasping, clinging, attachment. 
he talked about three kinds of grasping or thirst. The first one, the cause of continual suffering in our minds. Well, essentially, it's that deep desire for things to be different than the way they are. It's constant demand for what next, wanting things to be different. That expresses itself in these three ways, craving for sense pleasures, craving for that next, that next um, pleasurable experience. How many of you today were, got caught in craving for the next experience, for something pleasurable? Just a few, yeah. everyone. The second kind of craving or thirst, the word in Pali is tanha, craving, thirst. The second kind is the thirst for becoming, for wanting to become something, wanting to be in a state of becoming. This is that state of being caught in, in leaning forward, in toppling forward into the next moment, wanting to become a better person, wanting to get to the end of the sitting. Did any of you notice that today? <laughs> when we're caught in the state of mind that drives that, we're caught in a state of, of, um, of becoming. When you had those moments today of being caught in the state of becoming, what did that do to your relationship to the present moment? This constant state of wanting the next thing, of trying to get to the next moment, you could say spoils, it colors our experience of the present moment. And as Eckhart Tolle puts it very beautiful, it turns the present moment from that place that the only place that we live, it turns it into a means to an end, a place that we pass through on our way to somewhere else. This is the trance that our mind goes into. It turns it into an obstacle. It's getting in the way of what we want, where we want to go, or it turns into the enemy. So you might want to reflect periodically, what is my relationship to the pre this present moment? This is why we emphasize so much, what is the quality of your mind that you're noticing? Are you noticing in a way that wants something to happen, trying to get somewhere? Are you noticing the third kind of craving, the third kind of thirst, the thirst for what's called non-becoming, or the thirst for make it all stop, or make something go away that expresses itself as aversion? Irritation fear, hatred, all of the different, uh, different ways that it expresses itself. So our relationship to the present moment has everything to do with what is the state of mind that is meeting it. And the Buddha saw that things are just the way they are, but our suffering comes from wanting it to be different. This expresses itself in so many um, insidious ways in our culture. Of course, in our culture, it's the, it's the wanting mind. It's the, the um, trance that suggests the more I have, the happier I will be. The, the trick that our mind plays with us as a result of so much conditioning that suggests that this moment isn't enough and I have to have somewhere, something or go somewhere to be okay. As Sogyal Rinpoche puts it, sometimes I think the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is this cycle of, of going around and around looking for that one experience that will make me happier, caught in a kind of trance of becoming. So sometimes I think the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs 
from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us with every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. As one Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all this samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. How do you feel when you hear that? such an indictment, but it's so true. Can we open it? Can we acknowledge it? Can we feel that in our, our own version of that? Can we accept it? That's the first noble truth. The second, the Buddha suggested there is a cause to acknowledge the cause. The, the prescription for the second is to abandon the cause, to, to let go. Hafiz realized in one of his poems called uh, Find a Better Job, says, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? <laughs> oh, I lost it. oh, here we go. Ajahn Chah says, let go. Let go of this constant demand for what's next, this obsession with the next best. See what, what happens when you let go, when you let be. He says, when you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. You let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. And Ajahn Sumedho, student of Ajahn Chah, put it this way. He said, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking or compulsive becoming. You simplify your meditation practice down to two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice, develop that and achieve this and go into that, understand this and read the sutras, study the Abhidharma. Abhidharma is Buddhist psychology, by the way learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Majamaka and the Prajnaparamita, these are different traditions, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, let go, let go, let go. He says, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. So remembering that story of the Buddha sitting, when when we say the word let go, it really has more of the flavor of, of let be. Don't, when things come into your experience, let them be. You'll begin to see that they do their own thing. You don't have to get rid of anything. I like there's one Tibetan teacher who has this beautiful, very pithy line. It says there's nothing to do or to undo. And that's been so helpful to me. 
nothing to do or to undo. And this is really the the quality of, of mindfulness that we bring, which is that balance of receptivity, but active in the sense that we're awake, but receptive in that we meet what's there without holding on, without pushing away these different forms of grasping that cause what we experience as our version of rope burn or suffering or stress. If we keep being lost in that trance of becoming, that trance of craving, the trance of, of trying to get rid of, being caught for, as you probably were today, in that feeling that comes over you when you're wanting the bell to ring. It becomes life or death, like the bell is the secret to happiness. When interestingly enough, if we were just to be able to pay attention, let that feeling be, oh, I want the bell to ring, be able to bring that into our field of attention. Oh, this is what wanting the bell to ring feels like. Taking our attention off of the bell and actually feeling that sense of, of waiting or wanting or you know, just letting that be. We'd see that that experience of waiting or wanting when it's when we let it be there, meet it with awareness, it, it melts away. And the bell maybe doesn't even ring and you're, you're back able to accommodate what's present. But when we're caught in that trance, don't know it. We're caught in that second noble truth, the cause of suffering. Makes it all feel very stressful. We start to believe that we need something to make us happy. This is what Sri Nisargadatta said about that. He says, as long as we believe we need something to make us happy, we shall also believe in its absence, we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. The pleasure we're seeking is a distraction for it increases that false conviction that one needs to do things and have things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the purpose of practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-available, ever-present experience. This is the quality of, of letting go, letting be realizing on right now when we're not caught in that state of wanting what's wrong with us what's wrong with this moment and at the same time as you're sitting here maybe you'll have a little glimpse of there's something nothing wrong with this moment your mind may come up with hmm, I wish he would or I wish it would this could be and before you know it and what we do with that in our practice, we just notice it. And by noticing, we, we let go. We abandon the cause of suffering. And then th that's the second part, relinquishing the cause of suffering. The third part of that second truth, we can say to ourselves, know inwardly, I let go of the cause of suffering. This has been abandoned. And that leads to the third noble truth. This, as I shift the, pa the pages, just a reminder that all of this reminds us that the, the purpose of our practice is fulfilled by this present moment. It's not fulfilled by where we get to. The beginning of our practice is right here. The path of the practice is right here. The end of the practice is right here. How can we let be? How can we let go into this present moment? The third noble truth, there is an end to stress, suffering. There is the possibility of the cessation of this suffering. I remind you of that line, to be seen here and now. We can, when we meet our experience, 
We can experience stress. We let it be. We abandon its cause. And we stay there long enough, as I described with the bell, we know for ourselves the end of that suffering. There's a moment of freedom. There's a moment of ease. There's a moment of okayness, a sufficiency that, that comes back into our experience. And we begin to see that there is an end. We're not, compl- as in spite of our views and stories, we're not constantly bound up in struggle and suffering and waiting and hoping, expecting and stress, that there, are, there are, is discontinuity, there are gaps in this. And there is, in the midst of things, we experience the end of our suffering. So you notice that moment when you're feeling the pain in your knee. And at first you're struggling with it, you're reacting to it, you're afraid of it at first, you're pushing it away, you're tight around it, you're bargaining with it, I'll look at you if you go away, and then you try not to look at it so it'll go away, and then you're trying, you're suffering with that, and then you slowly, slowly, you, you include all of that in your awareness. I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, okay, okay, I'll include that too. Before you know it, you're... The pain is still there. Your mind stops reacting. And then, of course, the pain does whatever it does. It gets stronger, gets weaker, changes into something else. Mind is okay. You know, oh, the struggle, there's, the struggle has passed for this moment. Pain may still be there, but the suffering about it has ceased. And this is the possibility. We have... The, our notion is that pain and suffering are so closely fused, we'd, we don't realize it's possible to have really stressful physical experiences, mental experiences, and at the same time, something in us not reacting to it, not suffering about it. This is what is fulfilled by every moment of mindful attention. Because a moment of mindful attention, inherent in a moment of mindful attention, is that you're not pushing something away when you're mindful. You're not trying to hold on to something you're mindful. You can't do that in the same moment as, and be mindful. And you're not denying something. You're not distracting yourself. You're right there. So we can each know, as we cultivate this habit of non-interfering, non-struggle by practicing mindfulness, we can know the end of suffering. Now there is a an experience that's described in the teachings. If one practices with a very powerful, continual um, application of mindfulness till the, till the mindfulness gets so strong where the, the gaps in mindfulness are so few that, that there is a, a way of, uh, of experiencing the life and its unfolding where our mind opens in a very profound way, and this is what happened to the Buddha, but we have many moments of this kind of cessation, many many moments of freedom. But if these little many moments are in some ways little windows of of a possibility of really living a life that is, is open and free in the midst of these joys and sorrows. This is the way the Buddha talked about this experience, this more, uh, you could say, more ultimate experience of freedom, of the cessation of suffering. He said, there is a field of experience beyond this entire field of matter, this entire field of mind that is neither this world nor, nor both, neither moon nor sun, I call this neither arising nor passing away nor abiding neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. He's speaking to that with, within us that's untouched by what happens to us. And we can, be, we can come to know this in a very direct, very uh, profound way. Meanwhile, we fulfill that by simple moments of mindful attention to what's there. So the third truth 
there's an end to suffering. This must be realized. That's the prescription. Must be experienced, realized. One has, has to be able to say this has been realized, real time. For some reason, whenever I get to this point in talks like this, I remember a, an experience that, uh, that really highlighted this for me. And it was in the course of my daily life. It wasn't on retreat. But I was really exploring this possibility of the Four Noble Truths in real time and just trying to attend to wherever I felt uh, stress, wherever it called my attention, some kind of stressful moment. And this is a kind of innocuous moment because we have very intense moments of stress, lots of them. This was an innocuous one of just driving along on a street in, in Marin County here in Mill Valley and driving along with my wife and we're just going with the flow of traffic and we come upon a car that's going in front of us. And immediately I felt a kind of aversion to the, the, um, the kind of car it was. it was. I don't even need to get into the kind of car it was. It was not even the kind of car, it was the color of the car. <laughs> the color of the car bugged me. So this reminds us that the, the place, the, going back to the cause of suffering, we develop attachments, these fleeting reactions of liking and disliking, of, of liking this, not liking that, harden into these kind of addictive patterns that we call attachment. And there are four of them that get us all bound up. The first one is a, a attachment to sense pleasures that we talked about. The second, attachment to views and opinions. And of course, this my view or an opinion of this particular car is, this is not a great color car. The third kind of attachment, attachment to rites and rituals, how people should do things. And in this case, the person wasn't just driving the wrong color car, but they were going exceedingly slow, <laughs> blocking the flow of traffic. And my attachment to, to rites and rituals, how people are supposed to drive, triggered this kind of dukkha. Why don't they go the speed limit? And I started to develop this whole identity around, this whole righteous identity around how um, people should drive. And, how, and then they were wearing these outfits that, that <laughs> triggered more judgment. So meanwhile, I had just entered into this, I'm going from just this open space of freedom and ease, and I had just completely entered into this whole identity of the of the sufferer, in a way, the identity of the reactive one. And I recognized, oh, this is dukkha. So I was fulfilling that path. This is, this is stressful. This has been, I accept that this is stressful. This has been accepted. The cause of it, quickly my mind went to what's the cause? Oh, I'm attached to thinking that people should drive a different color car. They should drive faster. They should not wear those outfits. They, they were wearing these white little visors and it just looked whatever. <laughs> anyway, so this is the cause of suffering. And as I just let myself feel that cause of suffering, that terrible physical feeling and contraction in my heart, and just let it be there, there was a, um, there was a kind of letting go, letting it be. And with that letting be, the second noble truth was fulfilled. This has been abandoned. The third noble truth was realized. It started to just melt away. And that leads to, that was the third noble truth. There is a cessation and end. And in the process of doing that, bringing mindful attention to this, I was also walking the fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path. The centerpiece of the eightfold path being the cultivation of mindfulness. That there is a path to the end of, of dukkha. And the prescription for the path, this must be practiced or cultivated. And one has to be able to say this has been cultivated. So in real time, I was able to say this has been cultivated. Now, of course, it hasn't been cultivated to the extent that it can be cultivated. Life is an endless opportunity for cultivation. You know, there's continual open field of creative possibility that we, we can either plant the seeds of more greed and hatred and delusion and grasping and becoming, or we can plant the seed of freedom. So the invitation of the Buddha was to use as the centerpiece of our life this uh, call to attention. 
and then support it with the development of the other limbs of the Eightfold Path. I'll just talk about the three main parts, is the bringing that mindful attention to our speech, to our livelihood, to our actions, have them be uh, devoted to non-harming in speech and action, and livelihood, to develop a wise understanding, to really see things clearly, see what causes suffering, what leads away from suffering, to understand these Four Noble Truths directly. This is wise understanding. To cultivate a wise intention, the intention to abandon those causes of suffering, to cultivate the causes of happiness. So many things can bring happiness to our hearts. To practice generosity, to practice non-harming, to train our minds, this brings great happiness. To be of benefit, all of these things. So the, the Buddha recommended that we develop a strong foundation of non-harming. And if we make that strong, it makes it possible then to develop our minds in practice and to then develop wise effort, wise concentration, wise mindfulness, and wise mindfulness, concentration, energy makes possible for each of us to become Buddhas, to really see how things are and to let go. So these moments are precious on retreat. They're rare. And as Thaddeus Golis put it, no matter what your condition is, no matter where you find yourself, your choice is always the same, to expand your awareness or to contract. And the encouragement is to expand your awareness, just moments of being present. So I'd like to end with a short passage from the Buddha called A Handful of Leaves, a little story. The Blessed One was once living, that's at least the way it's written here, the Buddha was once living at Kasambi in a wood of Simsapa trees. He picked up a few leaves in his hand and he asked the bhikkhus, how do you see this, bhikkhus? Which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand are those on the trees in the wood. The leaves that the Buddha has picked up in his hand are few, Lord, those in the wood are far more. So too, bhikkhus, monks, the things that I have known by direct knowledge are more. The things that I have told you are only a few. Why have I not told them? Because they bring no benefit, no advancement in the awakened life, because they do not lead to the cessation of suffering to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. That is why I have not told them. And what have I told you? There is dukkha. There is the origin of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. That is what I have told you. Why have I told it? Because it brings benefit and advancement in the practice of awakening because it leads to dispassion, to fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to Nibbana. So bhikkhus, let your task be, this is dukkha, this is the origin of dukkha, this is the cessation of dukkha, this is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. Let's sit for a moment. May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. So thank you for your kind attention. We have one half hour for 
mindful walking, for enjoying your steps on this earth, and we'll Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.